Welcome to Law and More, the podcast from awarding Hong Kong law firm Bose Colin and Collins that explores issues in the legal world and beyond. In this episode, we're thrilled to be joined by a true giant of the bar, King's Counsel Edward Fitzgerald, CBE, a champion of prisoner's right, steadfast opponent of the death penalty, and firm believer in the power of redemption. Ed looks back on some of his landmark criminal and human rights cases in a fascinating discussion with our senior partner, Colin Cohen. Stay tuned. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of our podcast. And on this occasion, it's one of the rare ones in that I'm not in Hong Kong. I'm here in the dungeons of Doughty Street Chambers. Uh-huh. And I'm delighted to be joined with one of the true giants of the bar, Edward Fitzgerald, King's Counsel. Founding head of Doughty Street Chambers in London, he specializes in criminal law, public law, judicial review, and international human rights law, and has frequently come and appeared before the courts in Hong Kong. In 2008, he was awarded the CBE for service to human rights. He's notably once famously described by his contemporary, Lord David Panic, King's Counsel, as the Rolls Royce in the cab rank rule of the barrister. Ed, it's wonderful to see you again. I ask all my guests, what's been keeping you busy recently? Well, Colin, I'm still doing lots of human rights cases and appeals, criminal appeals. Of course, the Assange case is still pending, and I've been involved in cases in Northern Ireland, in the Caribbean, more recently in Estonia, and also one pending in Albania and Tirana. So very busy and enjoying practice from Doughty Street, my home for many years. You seem to be all over the place. And indeed, quite interestingly, as my listeners know, I've been away a little bit from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. We did a little trip together, didn't we? Oh, hey. yes, I should say I've just had my 70th birthday and you very kindly took me for a trip to um, Lille for the England match against Samoa, which was very exciting if a close shave. It was rather a very, very exciting weekend. Anyway, before we discuss more of your distinguished career, let's go back a bit in time. Tell me a little bit about your education, where you were raised, schooling, and what got you into the law? Well, (laughs) my father was a businessman, but a great scholar of French and German literature as well, and fought with the free French during the war. So he was a flamboyant character, to say the least. Uh, My mother was a poet who tragically died when she was still very young. But I was brought up in a family of lots of lots of poetry around and lots of exposure to the more eccentric types. My stepmother was Polish, so I met all the Polish exiles and during the members of Radio Free Europe during that time. So I, I was very exposed to all sorts of different worlds, my mother being American. Yeah. And you went to Oxford and you studied classics. What made you do that? Well, I loved Latin and Greek and uh, I enjoyed the classical literature and the philosophy too. I'm catching up on the history now, reading more and more and still reading Latin quite a lot. And I loved it. I loved doing classics. I loved Latin poetry, Greek poetry, Greek drama, the whole lot. And it still remains relevant. Greek tragedy is the best preparation for the criminal law you can have. And what got you into law? Well, I think I was always interested in the, the, the legal process of Dostoevsky and Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov. All great Russian literature was about the law or criminal law. But I, but I went to a lecture by Anthony Kenny about the question of intent in murder based on the Hyam case. And I then did get really gripped by the idea of criminal law and the 
moral dilemmas it throws out. And I was always interested in prisoners and uh, prisoners' rights, uh, really right from a very early age. And I was always opposed to the death penalty, really, from school days onwards. And barrister as opposed to a solicitor? Yes, I'm, I suppose that was just because I liked talking more and I liked the academic side of barristering. But I was lucky enough to get into Dr. Johnson's buildings, which was John Mortimer's chambers, Emily, lots of fascinating people. And that's where, of course, I met Jeffrey Robertson, who was later to found Doughty Street, a brilliant and most stimulating person. And he really persuaded me to come to the bar and, and do it properly. Yes. And we do go back a very, very long way, because you may recollect this. I was going all the time to one Dr. Johnson's buildings yeah. because Martin Thomas, now yeah. Lord Thomas, yeah. was my lead counsel yes. in the Lorraine Osman extradition. They yeah. turned out to be one of the major decisions. We fought yeah. eight habeas corpuses. And I remember walking around the chambers and bumping into you. Helena Kennedy was also there yes, as well. Yes, Helena was there. We had many future judges there. Stephen Irwin, Michael Grieve, wonderful people and great lifelong friends. Gavin Miller, um, Keir Starmer, of course, yes. joined us while we were there and um, has remained a lifelong friend. So tell me a little bit about your early days in the law. I mean, were you running around to magistrates' courts? Right at the start, I did anything that was thrown at me, and that actually involved defending pornographers, because that was one of the staples of, of one Dr. Johnson's through John Mortimer and Jeffrey Robertson. But then I started to do criminal defense, criminal appeals, especially on sentencing, and then I moved into the area of prisoners' rights which really was one of my major preoccupations throughout my life, and also mental health review tribunals. Yeah. So it was a blend of knockabout stuff and really quite interesting work on prisoners and mental patients and inquests too, a lot of inquests in deaths into custody. Again, expected to be a barrister. Did you enjoy your early part of your career at the bar or did you find it difficult? Were you happy at the early days? Not always right at the start, but in pupillage. But I think after I started to work on death penalty cases with Jeffrey Robertson and on the prisoners' rights cases and the mental health review tribunals, then I really felt this is my space. This is what I want to do. And I started to really enjoy it and find it very fulfilling. And Tell us a little bit more about your Caribbean cases, because you were the doyen of, of doing all the best you could to try to get the capital punishment was the name of the game at those early days. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? What's yeah, that? well, it all started because Jeffrey Robertson was very involved in doing those cases, as were many of the others. Peter Thornton, who was a great figure, uh, head of the NCCL in those days. Michael Grieve was very involved in that too. So we got very involved in the defending people in the Privy Council who were facing the death penalty. And then I went out to Jamaica to help prepare an appeal and got involved in the idea of execution after long delay being unconstitutional, case which then Jeffrey Robertson argued in Pratt and Morgan. And after that, was constantly called in to death penalty cases. And I became one of the advocates on the issue of whether the mandatory death penalty was unconstitutional which we challenged firstly in Belize, then the Eastern Caribbean, then Barbados, Trinidad, everywhere, and mostly successfully. We got the mandatory death penalty struck down as unconstitutional, working with the Death Penalty Project at Simon's Muirhead and Burton, and working with Keir Starmer and many other uh, barristers uh, to 
set aside the mandatory death penalty. And the most interesting thing of all that was that once we got rid of the mandatory death penalty as unconstitutional, each of these jurisdictions had to adopt a new discretionary system of capital sentencing and, in fact, develop very restrictive rules so that practically no one has been sentenced to death or had their sentences finally upheld since the case of Ray's Hughes and Foss. Yes, that's very interesting. Of course, you were also involved, heavily involved in the David Bentley. David Bentley was someone who was hanged. It's a famous phrase, let him have it. Yes. As opposed to, he said, well, I said, give him the gun as opposed to shooting him. Well, there's some doubt as to whether he actually said the words at all. But if he did, as Lord Bingham pointed out in the appeal, it could just have meant hand over the gun. Yeah, I think Derek Bentley was obviously one of the cases which led to the abolition of the death penalty in England because there was this secondary party who had very limited intellectual capacity and had a a, a very troubled childhood and was certainly not the shooter in the case and arguably not involved in incitement of any sort. So it was always felt to be a terrible injustice when he was hanged and he did not have a fair trial. But because the victim was a policeman, there was a feeling that he had to hang and mercy was refused. So yes, that was very much one of the great motors of the abolition of the death penalty in England. And yeah, I was really fortunate to be called on to um, represent him together with Henry Blackstone and Bernberg. Yes, you know very well. Now, what I am a little bit interested in, you became at that time Queen's Counsel, now Mm. King's Counsel, Mm. taking silk. And you took it quite early on. I mean, was that something you were asked to do or you wanted to do? Or some people prefer to remain with juniors. You took silk quite early in your career. Uh, well, I think I was 41 when I got silk. Yes. It was relatively early. It, it's a difficult decision whether to continue working as a junior where you're in charge of the case right through or, or to become a, a silk. But the very first big case I had as a QC was the Venables and Thompson case, which went all the way up to the... House of Lords. And just to, for our listeners in Hong Kong, Venables and Thompson were the two youngsters who then yeah. committed the murder of another young boy. And yes. that always had some stigma about that case has always, always, always been you know, very, very unpopular. Yes, yes, they were very unpopular. And indeed, uh, they and their families were the recipients of death threats and had to eventually have anonymity orders when they were released. Yeah, You've also acted for Myra Hindley, the Moore's murder and all the rest as well. And a lot of people would ask, and they always ask me that question, well, how can you act for the, the, the most heinous crimes? People yeah. not sometimes understand as solicitors and as barristers, we act for anybody. And you're one who will always, 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 no matter who they are, you always will take up the cases. Yeah, well, obviously the system wouldn't work if people could refuse to represent the unpopular defendants or the despised defendants whose crimes were particularly horrendous. So it's it's right that we have a system whereby you have to take a case as a barrister if it's within your area of expertise. And so I believe in the cab rank principle, but also I think it, it reflects a really basic human rights norm that everybody has a right to be represented, everybody has a right to be defended, and everybody has a right as a, a human being to be treated with dignity no matter how horrendous their crime. Yeah, and also it's quite interesting, the Murray Henley case did actually lead to quite a dramatic major legal change regarding the powers of the Home Secretary 
in dealing with that matter. So it was an important case whereby they had to look at things in a different way with regard to the life sentence. There were a whole series of cases of which the Hindi case is one, looking at the question of how you fix the minimum punitive term for convicted lifers, convicted murderers sentenced to life. And hers was one. And her complaint was that they had originally fixed 30 years. And then as the 30 years expired, they increased the minimum period she should serve to life. And that was done administratively. And as a result of a series of cases, it's now all fixed judicially. But it's true that the periods that are now fixed have become longer and longer. Uh, And whereas people sentenced to life imprisonment for murder might well do in the region of 10 to 12 years, now people are doing 30 years or whole life quite often. And they're quite difficult to challenge that because although the judge will give an indication that you will serve a minimum term of X number of years, once you get to going X number of years, they still then go to the second part, whereby, like in I can talk about Hong Kong, the long-term supervision board was saying, are you then able to be in a position to recommend your release? Are you still a dangerous person to the community? Well, I mean, the way it works in England now is that Firstly, a punitive term is fixed, which is the minimum period that must be served for punishment, which can vary between 15 years and the whole life, depending on how grave the offence is. And in some cases, it can be less than 15, They're depending on the degree of culpability, the age and the mitigation. And then even when you serve that period, you won't be released unless you're safe to go out and the parole board will decide that. But at least the system now has a certain amount of openness transparency and uh, there are due process rights at both the punitive stage and the parole stage. Yes, and you've always remained true to great concern for prisoners' rights, young offenders, and the possibility of rehabilitation. How did this all come about? Was it your good Catholic upbringing? Uh, Potential. I mean, for all of us, I'm certainly in favour of an indulgent view of human weakness and I certainly believe in the infinite capacity of all human beings to change and in the rehabilitative ideal. Yeah, it probably does come partly from Christianity, from Catholicism, which is my particular persuasion, but from the basic Christian belief. But also, I, I think just a genuine belief in the perfectibility of human beings and changeability, and really from incredible experiences of people who've not been executed, who've then gone on to live incredibly good lives, despite having been convicted of some serious murder and of rehabilitation, particularly in the field of those convicted of terrorist offences, seeing people released and then living incredibly worthwhile and transformed lives. Yes. However, there are some criminals who will always be too dangerous to be released. Yeah. The problem is the identification of the ones who are not going to change. I agree that they exist. But it's not always easy to know who are the ones. I mean, I suppose one could come up with a fairly good bet in some cases that that they're unlikely to change until very old age. But it is extraordinary how people who would have been written off at the time of sentence as totally committed to crime or totally violent and unredeemable have over the years changed and transformed themselves. Now, let's go back a little bit in time to 1990 and... I want you to tell us a little bit about your decision to set up the building I'm in, Doughty Chambers, 
And what, how did that all come about? And you had some very, very eminent colleagues on the way. Jeffrey Robertson, who I know quite well, Baroness Helena Kennedy, current, as we said, Sakir Starmer, and who will be the next prime minister if the cards fall in the right way. Well, I certainly hope he will. Yeah. Yeah. But this is the powerhouse of liberal legal establishment. There, there was a basic disenchantment with the setup in one Dr. Johnson's buildings, where that was a great starting point. A very large group of us left Dr. Johnson's and took the long trek up out of the cloistered and sepulchral world of the the temple up to Doughty Street to found a new chambers. It was a group of us. We were lucky that Geoffrey Robertson agreed to be the, the head and was an inspirational figure from the start. But there was a, a, a big group of us who, who came up here and have yeah, flourished since then. And now today, it's a very big chambers with m- massively diverse areas of law being practiced by lots of brilliant young lawyers. But fighting... Still fights. Still committed to to civil liberties, social justice, yes, and access to justice for all. Let me throw this at you, Mm. throwing throwing a curved hospital rugby ball, as they would call it. One very eminent Lord um, Justice of Appeal said the following of you, Ed Fitzgerald could have made a fortune had he chosen to devote his talents to other fields of practice. Were you ever tempted to do so? Uh, I I think... (laughs) As a very flattering remark, I mean, it's completely untrue. I would be hopeless in any other area of law than that, which I'm doing now. Uh, and I can't imagine myself as a successful commercial lawyer. And when things get super technical, I'm not always at my best. But I think we're very fortunate uh, at the bar, and we were very fortunate in the legal aid days that one can earn a very good living practicing in this area. Obviously, it's not the same as in commercial. Well, I, well, I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit because this sort of leads me in very interestingly as to what got you to Hong Kong. And I knew you a little bit beforehand, yes. but you advised in Hong Kong. But yeah. I recollect, I like our listeners know how you came to Hong Kong and you acted in the case of a very good client of mine in a quite a complex commercial allegations of corruption and yes. competition that be a very good client of ours. How he selected you which is quite interesting. He was a very good client and he came to the UK and he sat in courts and watched all the, the leading king's councils and he saw Claire Montgomery, he saw all the others and he saw you. And he selected you because he said you would never, never give up. You were, I was told to instruct you and bring you out to Hong Kong. Yes. Do you remember that? I do, Michael Wong, yes, yes. Uh, who, was, who was, yes, a very good lawyer himself. Well, right. he wasn't. He liked, he read a lot of law. He, he, yeah, no, he, lo- he loved studying the law, and we eventually successful in, in proving that it was an abusive process, the proceedings against him. Yes, so that was what first brought me to Hong Kong, and it was thanks to Michael Wong that I came out, and that was a very interesting case about misuse of police powers leading to an abuse process. And yes, well, I'm very grateful that he, he did bring me out. And I, I, I found it really stimulating and interesting working. Enjoy Hong Kong? I loved Hong Kong. Uh, I'm very sad about the situation that has now developed there. But I had a really many, many great friends there. And very sad that haven't, I haven't been for the last... We're trying to do something about that, yeah. I hope. But anyway... One of the most notable cases you did in Hong Kong for me, which had all the headlines and everything Mm. else, was I recollect saying, would you come out, would you do this for me, was the Nancy Kissel case. Yes. The the milkshake murder in that I took over for the retrial. Mm. And then, if you remember, David Perry was was instructed. And that was an interesting case we had together. Yes, yes, I remember it 
very well and David Perry saying we are not going to fall out over this because there'd been tremendous blood on the carpet in the first trial yeah. between the opposing lawyers and we didn't and it was a trial before Andrew McRae where we were running diminished responsibility I still think that it was a good case but it was rejected by the jury we took it all the way up on appeal all the way up to the final court of appeal on the issue of directions on diminished responsibility and then we've continued the fight trying to get her out on parole ever since yes the long term we tried to judicial review the long-term prison review board and she was sentenced Mm. in there in hong kong the judges do not give a recommendation it's left to the long-term supervision board which has judges on it and eminent psychologists whereby they have to give a recommendation to the chief executive Mm. when she would be released. She's now done about 16, 17 years. Mm. And the issue there was quite a narrow one, was that we tried to say, look, you must have something in your own mind. You've got to say she spent enough time to enable you then to go to the next stage if she's safe to be released. But we failed on that and we didn't get very far on that one. So we're a little bit behind the times in Hong Kong compared to the jurisdiction here in respect to that. And of course, there's one other case you did for me, which is still ongoing, which Tim Owen is now dealing yes. with. And we don't want to say too much about that because mm. the trial is ongoing. But you spent nearly 12 months with me out yes. in Hong Kong, traveling to New Zealand, doing a very complicated fraud of lots of yes. commercial terms. And yes, really that's true. Yes, you yes. quite enjoyed. I did enjoy, yes. I had to um, learn a lot about the um, stock market in Hong Kong. I had a brilliant junior, Benson Choi, who made sure I did understand it. And yourself, obviously, as my instructor said, that was that was a really interesting case, yes. And, of course, that opened my eyes to other areas of Hong Kong life. I think, I think that was good. I, I think what we enjoyed most, I mean, you have the reputation of being the most cleverest, brilliant lawyer. But for you to find your way from the Conrad Hotel speaking out of school at the moment, to get no more than 15 minutes to the high court. I had to have one of my junior young trainees every day there to take you to make sure you did not get lost. I think there were a few early hiccups before I found my way, but I could now find it in the dark. But it was wonderful living just next to the court with the beautiful Hong Kong park next door and and fighting that case. And, And indeed the Nancy Kissel case before that, which obviously involved allegations of domestic abuse and issues of mental fragility, which I hope eventually that they will see tariff reduced and her released. But um, we've remained true to the fight for Nancy Kissel to try and get her out on parole ever since. And I hope, you know, I hope the um, long-term review board will eventually. Yeah, I I hope so also. Mm. Back to the UK here. You know, into London. You're busy doing lots of very interesting cases. You've got the Julian Assange case. You're doing some other very interesting work. You seem to be the man to go for at the moment. Content with life at the moment? I'm very busy. I'm too busy to ask questions, but I'm very busy enjoying and enjoying and finding it stimulating and um, very much enjoying working with my colleagues here in Doughty Street and the, the wider bar. Yes, so I, I, I hope to keep going as long as possible. Yeah, and you have recently celebrated your 70th birthday in great style. I was delighted to attend and be invited to meet the great and good of the whole of the bar were there to talk about you. Any thoughts of slowing down? Now you're 70? Well, you're definitely coming to mature like that great wine. I hope I'll be able to keep going. I think, interestingly, both 
judges and counsel are going on far longer nowadays than perhaps they used to and certainly be reluctant to retire from the fray for many years to come, I hope. That's very, very good news. And just to update everybody, leading counsel, Silks and King's Council from England and Wales, are being admitted all the time in Hong Kong if the case warrants of complexity. I mean, the chief judge are still admitting people. And I do hope that you will be able to come out to Kong, if your diary's not too busy, to come to Hong Kong and help enhance the bar. Because the objective of having King's Council into Hong Kong is an extra dimension to help the bar. All cases before our Court of Final Appeal, the judges are from some law lords, ex-Supreme Court judges are sitting as non-permanent judges. So I do hope that you will be able to come to Hong Kong and I can then brief you on a substantial matter so we can work together again. Yes, I hope to be able to come out. And despite all the difficulties, I still passionately believe in the rule of law. And if one can play a part, either through lecturing or peering, then that's something I would hope to do. Ed, it's been fascinating to chat to you. So I've got to thank you so much for joining us on Law and Law. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Law and More, brought to you by Bose Cohen and Collins. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out our back catalogue and hear from some other guests who have featured since we launched in June of 2021. For more legal opinion, news and updates, visit BoseCohenCollins.com or you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon on our next episode.